welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. the proper mental podcast welcome specifically to episode 119 of the proper mental podcast and my guest this week is professor rory o'connor who is an author a speaker an educator who has spent 25 years working in the field of suicide research and prevention he also leads the suicidal behavior research lab at the university of glasgow which is one of the leading suicide and self-harm research groups internationally and in this episode i chat to rory all about suicide and suicidal thoughts and self-harm We look at some of the contributing factors to suicidal behaviour and we dismantle some of the common myths and misconceptions about suicide. Rory also takes me through his journey into this work and the personal reasons that he has behind his passion for what he does. And we talk about research itself and what it looks like and why it's important and how it can help people to understand something that can be almost impossible to understand. And it's a really good chat. I know personally I got a lot from it. I reached out to Rory after I read his book. It's called When It's Darkest. And obviously that book is all about Rory's work and his route into that work. And it's just a deeper dive on all the things that we talk about in this episode and a whole lot more. It's all in there. And that's a really good read. I'd highly recommend it as someone who has lived with suicidal thoughts and spent a lot of time in that mindset, in that headspace. I felt really seen reading it. I had a lot of aha moments reading it and it helped me to understand certain aspects of myself and my own experience um, that I hadn't really maybe looked at in that way before so yeah I was really grateful when Rory said he'd come on for a chat I read the book I reached out to him that tends to be how these things come about he's a lovely man he does important work and I hope you get as much from this chat as I did he also does a lot of work with MQ Mental Health Research which is a mental health research charity and he hosts their podcast and they have some great guests on there. I'm sure there'll be a bit of crossover between his podcast and this one. I know Claire Eastham has been on with Rory. She's wonderful. She did a great episode with me. I'd highly recommend that. And this episode also ties in with one from a few weeks back with Angela Samata and in that episode we talk about a film she made called Life After Suicide and Rory's in that film and together they talk about research and they talk about Rory's work so if you've watched that or listened to that episode this one ties in quite nicely if you haven't go back give it a listen watch the film and then catch up with this one everything you need to know about Rory is all in the episode notes how to follow him on social media I think Twitter is where he's most active and you can get his book wherever you get your books from shop local in it if you can and of course all the stuff to get hold of me is all in the episode notes as well and if you have a couple of minutes spare to leave me a review I'd really appreciate it Spotify or Apple iTunes both of those would be great five stars please anyhow this is episode 119 of the proper mental podcast with professor rory o'connor thank you very much for listening enjoy (laughs) 
So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Rory O'Connor. How are you, mate? I'm very well. It's a Friday. So Fridays are always good days. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Waiting for the weekend to start. Exactly. Mate. Yeah. Oh, mate. I thought, speaking of starting, I thought the best place to start today would be um, with yourself. How do you like to describe what it is that you do, Rory? Well, that's a good question, um, Tom. I suppose primarily I'm a, a suicide researcher. So I'm a professor at the University of Glasgow. I'm a psychologist by training. Well, I suppose I'm most in terms of the work that I do, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly probably known for the work that I do on suicide and the research I do on suicide. But I suppose the way um, sort of struggle, yes, I'm definitely a suicide researcher, but I think um, I'm a sort of suicide prevention advocate because as well, I, I suppose, in addition to the work that I do as a researcher, and I think that's vitally important work. But for me, um, the reason we do the research is to hopefully help save lives. And so it's so what's moving from that researcher hat to a sort of suicide prevention advocate or implementation scientist or policy or whatever. And I suppose the work that I've been doing then over the last well, 25 years is really trying to combine both research with well, policy and practice. So you put those two together. Um, so yeah, but an advocate uh, and for preventing suicide and hopefully providing a voice on a sort of international stage as well as a national stage in my in my role as president of the International Association for Suicide Prevention, an advocate for really trying to prioritize suicide prevention nationally and across the world. Yeah, I suppose that whole sort of nationally and internationally is just so important, isn't it? Because of the all the different factors that we need to think about when we talk about suicide. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And I suppose even if you think about, of course, we all we both live in the UK, and that's where we probably know most about um, or see most of the devastation of suicide in our on our doorsteps in our communities, and and it's heartbreaking that whatever it is, between five and 6,000 people who lose their lives to suicide each year in the UK. But if you look at the global context, um, the global context is just devastating because we we know that at the very least, 703,000 people die by suicide each year. And also, although most of the research evidence for suicide prevention comes from high-income countries, the majority of people who die by suicide that happens in low and middle income countries. So we think about um, the sort of the, the burden of suicide then. It's about 79, almost 80% of the world's suicides happen in low and middle income countries. So although it's really important that we work on our doorsteps in our countries in the UK and Scotland and England, respectively, I think we need to always have our eye on that wider picture of preventing suicide globally. Yeah, definitely. And there's so much to be learned, isn't there, by like collaboration. I think, um, you know, when we're talking about suicide, we're talking about mental health and mental illness, that is the uh, collaboration around this is so, so, so important, isn't it? To just kind of, uh, you know, yeah, the more we can learn, the more we can do, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose your point, I just remembered I didn't really address your point about the many different factors. And one of the things we know for certain is that suicide's not caused by a single factor and it's looking at that complex set of factors and they're different, not just globally, they're different in different parts of the world. They're different 
within England and in Scotland are different within our communities. And, and so for us to understand that difference and intervene and hopefully support and protect those who are vulnerable, it is about collaboration, as you say. Suicide prevention takes all of us. And in Scotland, we often talk about suicide prevention being everyone's business. And, and the message there is just recognising and reminding us all that we all can do something to prevent suicide. And, and that can be something small, a small act or, or larger acts. And um, I mean, we often talk about, and there's lots of people and examples over the years of people I know who have who've reached out to somebody in a moment of crisis or have just connected with somebody. And that we think has saved lives. So it's reminding ourselves of that. Yes, on an individual level, we can do something, but then collaboratively, we're even stronger. We're all, we're all communities of individuals. And those communities are that sense of connection that communities can provide or that collaboration in terms of, if we look at a community, le community level or the sort of national level, if we look at politicians and clinical services, that collaboration between all of us researchers, people with lived experience, policymakers, um, clinicians, volunteers, any members of the community, we all can come together and that that's the sum the whole is so much greater than the sum of our individual parts. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to look at it. And I suppose, you know, once we're all working on our own um, sphere of influence, as it were, and those spheres start to overlap, then it just leaves so many less spaces that people are going to fall down, ultimately, you know? Yeah, um, and I, no, I couldn't agree more. And and it's just, it's a way of thinking about one of the things we know about the mind of somebody who's suicidal, often there's that sense of social disconnection, that sense of isolation, that sense of loneliness, or that sense of feeling a burden on those around them. And, and it's trying to think about ways in which we can all sort of build that sense of connection, build that sense of community, so that, so that all of us feel less alone in the world. And, and we all go through different, we all have different challenges in our lives. And the challenges um, for a man are different from the challenges for a woman. The challenges of somebody from an a ethnic minority background are diff different from somebody from another background is understanding that sort of that individual pathway of what makes us all unique also can convey our vulnerability and it's that and but we all can connect with each other on a sort of common humanity level that we're all individuals we're all different and what we go through is all is different but for us to prevent suicide we can we recognize and embrace that difference and but recognize that beyond the difference there's this common thread that we're all human beings all trying to navigate this challenging world and it's sadly been especially challenging going through COVID and now I'm concerned with the cost of living crisis and the continued inequality and exacerbation of inequality across our country. Yeah very much so and I suppose even if you take um, even if we're not talking about suicide or we're not talking about mental health or any of these things, just living like that is just a really lovely way to live, right? Even if we're it's just everyone kind of like looking out for each other, having the conversations, just doing a little bit. Um, it just sounds like a really nice society to me, you know? It's yeah. Just, uh... Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's not, some people might go, oh, this is airy-fairy stuff, pie in the sky. And it's, and it's not, it's not, I mean, I've witnessed and you probably have, Tom, the people you have on this podcast and people you meet in the sort of mental health sphere, lots and lots of people 
do do it and they're much more conscious of what we all can do to support each other and um and i think the more we bang that drum the better and and also um we're recording this in in january in in the uk and and i'm actually quite concerned in, in the english context actually that the uk government the westminster government have just abandoned plans to implement the 10-year mental health strategy which had i don't know countless thousands of people contributed to that to the consultation and now replaced it with these whatever major conditions and mental ill health is one of the conditions but my concern is this is not a time to abandon a 10-year strategy for mental health when people are going through absolute hell many people are with regard to trying to struggle to stay alive and mental health is so so important we do whatever we can so i am genuinely concerned that there's many questions that government will need to ask now I speak of somebody living in, in Scotland and we've a, we've a different art mental health policies devolved, but with my sort of national and international hats on, I am genuinely concerned with, with the UK's or the English, um, well, the Westminster government's policy in that regard, really, really concerning. Yeah, yeah, it is worrying, isn't it? You know, and I suppose, you know, again, it, it's just so much more important then that we all try and do a little a little bit because if they don't seem to care or if they're caring about the wrong things well any sort of change on that level takes a long time and in the meantime then you know we're all gonna have to kind of do our do what we can you know while that sorts itself out yeah but, um just to kind of rewind a little bit rory what was your what was your route into getting into this into the the world of of suicide because it is quite a and you know i don't want to say unusual choice rory but it's uh it's quite niche i suppose yeah no it is and um I suppose my we, we need to re- rewind. I think probably almost thirty years now, and um, so I I'm a as I mentioned I'm a psychologist and I trained and as a psychologist in, in Queen's University in Belfast and and as an undergraduate student I did work on depression as that was like my final year dissertation, and then how I got into and I my plan was to then do a PhD. I was really um, captured by the research bug at the end of my undergraduate degree. So my plan was to do a PhD, a doctorate on looking at depression, different sort of psychophysiological mechanisms associated with depression. But anyway, a very long story short is then I didn't get funding for that. But that summer, um, the person who turned out to be my PhD supervisor, he phoned me because this is I was just thinking recently, this is before the time of email. This is the and um, the mid-90s, email wasn't a thing anyway. So I got this call saying there might be funding to do a PhD on suicide, actually suicide in prisons as it happened. And would I be interested? And so I said, yes, that sounds fascinating. And in a way, suicide is the most devastating, of course, outcome from mental health problems so or from depression. So that was in some ways obvious. And so so I just started doing lots of reading on, on suicide in prisons. And then as it happens, then I, that funding fell through. But by that stage, I had already started thinking about suicide and, and then thought to myself, actually, that's where I see a really a real gap in our knowledge and our understanding. And so then I ended up getting a scholarship from Queen's, the psychology department at Queen's to do a PhD on suicide in the general population. And so that's, so in a way, it started very serendipitously just by a phone call and and that that sort of started me on that pathway, and that's where I've been ever since. So that was I started the PhD in 1994, 
Um, uh, and I've been continuing. I don't. I glitched there for a second, so just I don't know if that came through. Um, so I started the PhD in 1994, and I've been working in the area of suicide research and suicide prevention ever since. And I suppose the other thing worth highlighting is that although when I first started out working in suicide research, I hadn't been directly affected by suicide, but then sadly, like many, many people across the world now, I've experienced um, the death of of those loved ones or those close to me um, firsthand. And, and indeed that person who made that call to me, that person who um, was my became my PhD supervisor, he took his own life some years later. And um, and I and I often think back on that on that and uh, that serendipitous crossing of paths, because without doubt I I wouldn't be I wouldn't have done a PhD in suicide. It wouldn't have it would not have occurred to me at that time. Um, so I, I doubt I would be um, with you here, Tom, talking about suicide if it hadn't been for Noel. And then and then uh, um, also I've lost a very close friend. Um, who died by suicide as well. And, and again, in a book I wrote uh, a couple of years ago now, it is um, When It's Darkest, where I tried to combine my sort of, all of that stage writing during the, I wrote this during the pandemic, and I tried to combine my understanding research and professional understanding of suicide and suicide prevention over the last 25 years, but combine that with my own personal experiences, including, including those two bereavement, in particular Claire's death, which, um, well, both deaths were absolutely devastating, but Claire's in particular, which happened first, and a very close friend, really, um, really, yeah, impacted on me incredibly, uh, much more than I could ever have pre- predicted, which just really was devastating. And so that sort of gave me a sense of really the vital importance of the work that we all do in suicide prevention, but it also highlighted the challenge of how difficult it is to prevent suicide on an individual level. Yeah, sure. It's, um, you know, it's amazing really how if suicide is one of those things that people don't like to talk about, right? They don't like the words, they don't like to say it or to hear it. And we kind of pretend that it's, you know, that it's nothing to do with us. But when you kind of do some work in the space or when you advertise yourself as the sort of person who is is happy to talk about these things, it's amazing the amount of people that have been touched by it. You know, like it's so, for something we don't talk about, it affects a hell of a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. And so I did this, actually wrote this, I did this calculation when I was writing the book. Was it, so... If we go back to the statistic I said earlier, about seven hundred and three thousand people die by suicide each year somewhere in the in, across the world. And if you think about the number of people who potentially knew that person, there's a now pretty famous study in our field published in by a lady called Julie Carell, a psychologist, clinical psychologist, and she estimated that in, in the U.S. that for every person who dies by suicide, upwards of 135 people may have known the person who died. So you just do the simple calculation that every single year then, if you do the 703,000 multiplied by 135, that gets you whatever, 95 million, I think it is, um, people potentially knew the person who died. And many of those people will be bereaved, really, uh, and others who you may not traditionally think of as bereaved may have been affected. And 
And actually, one of the things that's really important to think about when we are talking about suicide are these ripples. And, and from the work that countless people have done in the field and the number of people I've met over the years who maybe it was who've been, who have lost somebody, not necessarily in their immediate friendship group or family circle, because of course that will be devastating and those people will be devastated. But often that those ripples of people, not maybe maybe just somebody, say in the school context, somebody who wasn't the best friend, but somebody who knew the, the young person or in a work context that wasn't an immediate colleague, it was somebody who was in your company or your organization. And that those people are really affected as well. And, and what we've got grown to understand is that what none of us can really predict is the impact that any death would have on us. Because if you think about it, if I if I think about the people I've met over the years who've been who who've been unexpectedly affected, and they tell stories like uh, that it wasn't that they were particularly close to that person, but that person's death reminded me of a time when I was suicidal or when I was struggling and it reminded them of the, a time in which of their own fragility or another example of somebody who, who had lost a family member to suicide before that person was born, but that still brings it front and center. And I think that is really important for all of us to hold in mind when we're thinking about suicide is that the hidden scale of the impact of these ripples and what we do not know what's going through the mind of somebody when you encounter or you're bereaved or you hear of somebody who's died by suicide. Yeah, just that, that knock-on effect. And I suppose something that jumped out to me then, Rory, when you were speaking is that there's a certain amount of irony in that a lot of people who make that decision uh, to take their own life, they feel lonely and they feel like a burden and they feel like no one cares. And then it's only after they've passed that that it, they're then shown how many people genuinely did care, you know? And it's like, it's like there's, something, there's something in that, you know, that really kind of jumped out to me then. No, totally. And, and I think that all, I mean, highlights a couple of things to my mind as well is, is it, so these myths around suicide often as well, is that so many people who die by suicide and, and they, they, yeah, they feel that they're a burden on loved ones and, and the world would be a better off, a better place without the minute. And, and so when people talk about suicide as being a selfish act, I always sort of um, resile from that because in the mind of the person who's suicidal, they're so often so overwhelmed by mental pain. And in the work that we do, we talk about being trapped by mental pain and suicide is a is not about necessarily ending one's life, but wanting the mental pain to end. And often you're so overwhelmed by the mental pain, you can't really consider the impact or you don't consider the impact on loved ones. And that because you think that the, it, 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 if you think of the comparison, the sort of relative comparison, then that person thinks, well, no matter what, I'm relieving others of pain by dying rather than causing devastation and havoc if I die. And so, so it's really important we think about be more compassionate about understand that understanding of it. And then the other thing struck me when you were asking that question, Tom, was um, when we think about, you're right, when people die and when there's all these outpourings, understandably, of grief and, and recognition of how, how good the person was in life. So that's 
and, that, and I'm pleased to see that in the context of it helps challenge the stigma. But if we think about what happens if somebody engages in self-harm or attempts suicide, often we don't respond with compassion. And too many people still to this day who self-harm or attempt suicide and come into contact with clinical services. The response isn't is too often not compassionate, not humane, but rather it's blaming, shaming, and, it's, and with no sense of understanding of the pain an individual must be experiencing that they're willing to inflict harm on themselves. So I think we have a long way to go in terms of challenging the stigma of bereavement by suicide. We're making some progress. But when people engage in self-harm and suicidal behavior, which we know are, are important predictors of suicide, I think we haven't, we're, we're not compassionate enough there. We don't have an understanding. Um, and we really need to do much, much more in that regard. Yeah, very much so. I think that that conversation always is, is always focused on, on the act itself. And people maybe don't take into account all the all the different factors that lead up to that act. And if you've got someone who's in that much pain, telling them to stop is not going to work. It's not going to help, right? It's the the act itself is almost the, the end product for want of a less sort of, you know, um, heartless term. But it is all the different things that played into that, um, that takes people to that point, to that edge, to that prefaces, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, we, and we all need to think about like so we talk in, in in research terms as suicide is a result of a complex set of factors this sort of biopsychosocial model this recognition that suicide is caused by a combination of biological factors psychological factors and, and social factors and i often say that suicide yes is ultimately a psychological phenomenon because an individual makes a decision to end their life. But that decision is like a false choice. So it's not because the person's so overwhelmed by pain. But what we have to recognize is that as, as suicide doesn't occur in a social vacuum. And so we think about those social factors and we think about the fact that so many people who die by suicide have experienced early life trauma and they haven't been protected. So many people who die by suicide are from more socially disadvantaged backgrounds but through no fault of their own, they have been, that was conveyed a vulnerability. And we need to recognize that socioeconomic gradient, that you're three to four times more likely to die by suicide if you're from a more socially disadvantaged background compared to a more affluent background. So society is conspiring against them. And, and, and one of the things which is heartbreaking, if you take, we often, I often talk about the importance of taking a lifespan approach to understanding suicide risk is that over the last 13 years, we have seen a decimation in services to support early intervention. And early intervention, not only is it the moral, morally correct thing to do because it's protecting the vulnerable and it's giving people the best start in life. But if you're a government, it's it's ridiculous to call it because it's also economically makes sense because if you protect people early in life that they, they will get they're much more likely to um, not need clinical services much more likely to be contribute to society in the way economically and I'm not making a judgment on this for the individual I'm making a judgment from the political decision it doesn't even, it makes no sense at all you might save money in the short term by cutting these 
early intervention services, but the long-term costs on an economic scale are vast, but also, and probably more importantly, on a personal and, um, and moral um, level, it's even more, it's even more disgraceful and more and more important. So we need it, so it's important we get those messages out there that suicide is often reduced to, oh, it's a personal act. And of course it's a personal act, but often the causes of it are social. As well. and, and, and and remember, we also know that that social context also impacts on your mental health across the spectrum. And we know that mental illnesses are also socially patterned. You're more likely to experience a mental illness from a more socially disadvantaged background as well. So there's a whole host of things going on here and we need to really, really um, hammer that message home. And then the last thing on my sort of rant, sorry, Tom, is that is we don't have enough service. The services needed are not available. And where they are available, there either are long waiting lists, especially for child and adolescent mental health services. In many cases, not many, but certainly in, I don't know precisely the percentage, but in too many cases, young people might have to wait up to 12 months to receive life-saving treatment. And that's just unacceptable. And, and, and then the last sort of bit on that is, although three quarters of all suicides in the UK are by men, we know men are less likely to access mental health services. So the question has to be, why is that? And part of the answer to that question is because the services are not tailored to the needs of men and they're not, and, and they're, and so they're insufficient. And so again, we need to be really um, uh, basically beating that drum as well of going, actually, we need investment, but they need to be tailored services, things that people need and will use. Because if we don't, you can have whatever services out there, but if they, don't, if they don't meet the needs of individuals or if there are so many barriers to you using those services, they're not going to help anybody. And then, then I said there was the last thing, but one other last bit on this is we have all these messages about reach out, talk about your mental health, right? And one level, that's great, but that is unethical and immoral if there are not the services there. So we need to, we need to know ensuring that if we're going to if we're going to say reach out for help, talk about your mental health, we all want to see we all the government in particular have a moral obligation to ensure that those services are available and the supports when you ask people to reach out are accessible and you can get them when you need them, not on these long waiting lists. Yeah, that's a that's a really, really good point, isn't it? Because you know that that reaching out, that opening up is, you know, it's so so hard. And it often once that box is open it can't always be shut you know so if someone's going to decide to make that really brave decision to ask for help well then help has to be there or that's you know things are going to um there's a potential for something to get out of hand really really quickly isn't it yeah very very much so it's kind of you mentioned before that that feeling of being stuck and that feeling of being trapped and you know that comes up on this podcast so much and i know you know i've had my um my own experiences with uh, suicidal thoughts and i actually had a, a an attempt planned that i was sort of um uh, talked out of at the very last minute um and that was certainly my experience of not being able to go back not being didn't feel strong enough to go forwards and i certainly couldn't stay stay where i was and when i was reading your book something that really stood out to me um you called it the um the everydayness of suicide and I think that's so important because there's this whole thing of that suicide is only attached to a mental illness or to someone who's having these big things. And that that wasn't the case with me. It was, a, you know, I describe it as a like a leaking tap in the basement. It was a this 
completely just coincidence of life events over a long period of time. Um, but I, I love that way of saying it, the everydayness of, of suicides. And I think that's really important to talk about. Well, no, I appreciate that. No, I'm glad that that resonated with you, Tom. And well, also I'm delighted that you were um, didn't carry out your suicidal act and you're here with us. Um, so that's brilliant. Um, I, when I was writing, I was really deliberate about that everydayness as well. And, and, and the reason when I talked about that, part of it was to dispel some of the myths around suicide. Like I remember, and I don't know what your experience was as a kid in this regard, Tom, but I remember that um, anytime I heard about people who had mental illness or people who died by suicide, it was described in an othering sort of way. It was, these are people over here who are different from me and stuff that, that and either, and I probably thought at that stage, it was all to do with some other biology, their brain chemistry or something awful happened to them. And it's just something, and that was the reason why they died by suicide. And of course, and what I've learned over the last 28 years and what you've described really well in your example, even your leaking tap, I really like that. Um, is it, it's not, it's so often not about that. It's about just the, every, what stuff which happens in our everyday lives, because, um, what all we do, what we each one of us have in common, this why I often talk about this common humanity approach to understanding suicide is we all get up in the morning, every morning we try and get up and we get about our, our everyday life and we're hoping that negative stuff doesn't happen to us and that good stuff happens and we try to either, it doesn't matter what you're, what's happening in your life, either going to school or doing exercise or going to work or going to the library or going wherever you would go and you do, whatever, go for a walk. We're just navigating everything and then stuff stuff happens and it's part of that and, and that often is everydayness in our relationships um, and 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 it's really trying to highlight that that if, for us to understand suicide think about it in those ways and that makes it less scary less frightening for us to talk about that and also helps with the stigma because what we're trying to do is promote conversations safe and meaningful conversations we can all have with each other. And and yeah, and, and then, then it helps you understand, well, what's your relationship with alcohol like? And how is that linked to your relationship problems or what's going on in your life where you can't get a job or you've lost your job? or And and, and that everydayness is so important. And that's in the work that, in terms of you talked about the idea of being stuck and, and in the work that we've been doing over many years and led to the development of my sort of model of suicide that, integrated motivational volitional model, which for your listeners is a bit of a mouthful, just the IMV model. And at the heart of the IMV model is this idea that people feel trapped or stuck, but but that trap is trying to convey more than a stuckness. It's you're trapped and you're, you feel trapped by this mental pain, which becomes overwhelming. But the causes of that sense of entrapment are often everyday stuff. Now, it's sometimes not everyday stuff. It could be abuse. It could be really awful things, rarer things, but that, that, that the, the everydayness is so much, much part of it. And it's the everyday stressors and another row with your partner, another lost job, another bereavement, another stuff stuff has happened. And and I think what's really, I find it helpful, and it's to think of that sense of entrapment as being, and the model talks about it being driven by this sense of you feel defeated and or humiliated or often the sort of key drivers or, of the, the sense of mental pain, but that sense of being defeated or humiliated 
could also be driven by rejection, by loss, and by shame. And then when you talk about that drip drip effect or whatever, or that sort of that, um, that often that could mean lots of stuff could happen in your life, which you're become maybe uber sensitive to, but that could make you feel much more rejected, much more lost in the world and disconnected, which gives you a sense of actually, why should a baller continue to live? And it's and then another thing I talk about in the book is just what they think about um we all have a limited amount of mental turmoil we can experience in the same way that in physical health, we all have physical um, health limitations and capacities. I, I can only run a certain, I love running or playing tennis, whatever it might be, doing exercise. And there's only a, so much our body can take before we need to recover. That's exactly the same with mental health. And it's like, so So there's only so much we, the body can withstand and we need to recover. And the point I think, and it's different for everybody, that the pattern of this, for some people, it's one big event or two or three big events which lead to the you, you basically boiling over. Or others, it could be that drip, drip effect. You just become exhausted. And it's different. So it's different for everybody. And the factors that lead it to be lead to that mental turmoil are unique for all of us. But I think what's common is that when that mental pain becomes too much, like anything else, something has to give. And sadly, in a case of suicide, it's life that gives. The individual decides, I just can't continue. And that's it. Or do you know what I mean? That's, and, and I think that's what I've tried to convey when I start with the everydayness of suicide. But, and, it's, and it's helping, hopefully, all of us be more self-compassionate and also be compassionate to each other. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, very, very much so. That sort of, um, that whole thing about being trapped and when we can't escape from it, you can see why the idea of suicide, suddenly you have a solution, right? When it seems like there's no solutions, there's been no solutions for a long time, suddenly a solution has presented itself. Um, and what kind of I'm really interested in is if there's anything in the in the research, in the discussions, in all the work that you've done over the years that kind of shows why, some people, I can see why people start to think about suicide. I certainly know why I did, but then there has to be a shift, right, of thinking about it and going through with it. And is there anything in the, you know, in the in the research that kind of, I think in the book you call it the bridge, right, between the yeah, thoughts and yeah. the action, yeah. Yeah, no, I, no, that's a great question and such an important question, something we've we've done quite a bit of work on in recent years. So again, if I go back to my model, so the the IMV model. And for those listening, yeah, it's described in the book. If you don't want to buy the book, you can go to our website. Our website um, was suicideresearch.info. And we describe all this on for free. It's all free and YouTube videos and various bits and bobs, as well as the academic stuff. But in the IMV model, there's two key messages from the IMV model. So one of it is, one, one of the first messages is that the, which I've just talked about is what leads somebody to become suicidal is that sense of defeat and humiliation that you feel trapped by. Right? So that leads somebody to become suicidal. But then as you rightly point out, Tom, the next bit and the second sort of message from the model is the factors that lead you to become suicidal are different from those which basically form the bridge from suicidal thoughts to suicidal acts or I describe also in the book as crossing the precipice. 
from suicidal thinking to suicide attempts or sadly death by suicide. And again, according to the model, my model, I, I talk about these, this technical term is volitional factors. And this, the, the, in the model, there are eight of these volitional factors, which I say, which when they are present, increases the likelihood that somebody will cross a precipice or they're more likely to form this bridge um, from thoughts to acts. But obviously what we're trying to do in our research though is identify what those bridges are and then hopefully blow the bridge up or the bridges up so people don't cross it. But those are things like, and, and, and many ways they're, they're quite straightforward. So these volitional factors, these eight factors, I'll just talk about two or three for a second. Like one of them is, having access to the means of suicide. So if I'm thinking about suicide, right, and, and there's lots of barriers to me carrying out the suicidal act, well, I'm less likely to do so. I'm less likely to act on my thoughts. So, so if, but if I get ready, if I've decided on a particular method of suicide and then I'm, I can easily ex access it, in those moments of acute suicidality, you're more likely to cross the precipice, right? So it stands to reason. And that's why a lot of the sort of suicide prevention work, which has been shown to be effective, are, are things which restrict access to the means of suicide. And again, I talk about this a lot in the book, is one of the things I would argue is that anybody who's experienced suicidal thoughts should, should have a safety plan. And, and part of that safety plan is trying to help the individual work out what the triggers or what the warning signs of the suicidal thoughts may be erupting or escalating. And what can I do to keep myself safe? And one of the things you do in a safety plan is you try and think about what, what basically, how can I keep my environment safe? So I don't have ready access to suicidal means. So that's one. And then the other ones are, Things like impulsivity. So well, the more impulsive you are, unsurprisingly, the more likely you are to act in your thoughts. And then if you combine, combine impulsivity with alcohol, we know that alcohol is a, is a whatever, is, is two things. Well, alcohol is a depressant and it can facilitate it, can facilitate rash action. action. So in an alcohol state, you, uh, sometimes you think about um, alcohol researchers talk about alcohol myopia or the short-sightedness of alcohol. So, that, so when you're drinking alcohol, what becomes, in your, what becomes most clear in your mind is the immediate, what's going on immediately for you. You don't see the longer-term consequences. So you're, maybe long, you're not able to see the longer-term impact then of your actions. But it's that lubricant which increases the likelihood that you will act. And, and if you tend to be impulsive, you might be even more impulsive. A couple of, I'll just say two more on, them, on these on these volitional factors, Tom. Another one might be um, exposure to suicide. Knowing somebody else who's died by suicide, we know increases your own risk. So I'm at increased risk of dying by suicide myself. Now, it's important to get that in context, though. So although exposure, knowing somebody else who's died by suicide, increases my risk, that's a statistical increase in risk. The overwhelming majority of people who are bereaved by suicide will never become suicidal and will certainly never die by suicide. But we need to be vigilant that that is still a risk factor. And part of it, the reason it might be a risk factor is because if somebody close to me under a really stressful situation 
took their own life. Well, it makes it maybe a bit more, we talk about cognitive accessibility, maybe more likely it'll be in your mind if you experience something similar. And so, so again, it's the importance of vigilance there. And then just one, one last one is we all often talk about, and another of these volitional factors is you need to have the capability for suicide. And that capability is you have to be able to carry out the suicidal act to die by suicide. And, and we think that's made up of two things. One is you have to often withstand the level of physical pain to carry out a suicidal act. And you have to overcome sort of life's instinct of living. Like, like the, you have to overcome the fearlessness of dying. And again, we and others have done work on that. And that idea that people who've attempted suicide tend to have this higher physical pain tolerance and they're less fearful about dying. So again, the reason for highlighting these volitional factors is that if somebody is talking about suicide, those are the ones you're really trying to hone in on to see actually if somebody has lots of those eight factors, I would be really concerned. Now, just because you know those eight factors doesn't mean somebody is or isn't going to die by suicide. It's just trying to give you an insight into this idea that the factors that lead somebody to act on their thoughts, these volitional phase factors are different from the factors that lead somebody to become suicidal in the first place. Yeah, sure. I, would any of the, Are there any um, sort of behaviors that would be visible from the outside looking in? So if people have, have got those factors in their life, if, if I'm thinking about a loved one um, and I'm worried about them, would they display in any ways that we might notice behavior well it's, it's very difficult to answer that on an individual basis but one of the sort of common warning signs or some of the common warning signs that somebody might be suicidal you're looking at well people talking about being trapped talking about being a burden that sense of hopelessness and feeling defeated i mean these are all warning signs but also changes in behavior so you're looking for often there's changes in sleeping changes in drinking or in eating or risky behavior. So there's this marked change in behaviors and that you're saying, well, actually that person seems to be acting more riskier than usual or they're drinking more than usual or they're not eating or things like that. You're looking for these, these changes, marked changes. Um, also things, so I mentioned sleep. Sleep's a really important one as well because for us to have good mental health, we have to have good sleep. And we know that people who have attempted suicide much more likely to have poor sleep, more likely to have insomnia and so on. So those sorts of changes in behavior are important. But also getting your life in order. People are talking about, I mean, for certainly a percentage of people who die by suicide, they have got their affairs in order. And, and so, of course, for most people, that's perfectly, that's fine. But it's, again, another, another warning sign. And then just, so, I, so for me, it's just trying to, because it is unique to everybody, the first one foremost for me would be just trying to get some sense of whether that person may feel defeated, shamed, rejected, and how that's impacting on them. So it is it is difficult, but there are warning signs, but these warning signs, sadly, and I described the, the ones I've just talked about and others in the book, are sadly easier to identify after the event. And that's why I suppose I'm, and our ability to predict suicide on an individual level is really, really difficult and poor. It's no better than chance. And that's why our messages, messages of 
if you are concerned about somebody, always reach out, always ask that difficult question. Like, are you okay? And have you thought about, are you thinking about ending your life? Because all the work that we and others have done over many years is by asking those questions directly, you could start the conversation which could save somebody's life. And although it's a difficult question to ask, and I talk about how you, tips on how you might ask that question in the book, the, the key bottom, the bottom line is though, that you're unlikely, you're not going to do any harm. And in my experience, if you're asking that question, you can just, the person has a sense of relief that somebody has actually taken the time to ask that question. And then again, that as long as you respond non-judgmentally, um, you validate what it must feel like. And that validation is just simply saying, actually, that must be really difficult for you. And, and that sense of compassion, you're not going to do any harm. So please, a message I often say when I get these opportunities is, if you are concerned, please reach out. Please reach out and ask that difficult question. Yeah, definitely. It only takes like a little a little crack in the door that someone yeah. then feels like they can walk through, right? Yeah. And, and that's a really, really common myth. And I was hoping to do a little bit of um, myth yep. busting today with you, Rory. Um, but that's a myth, isn't it? That, um, you know, that if we talk to someone about suicide, that we're going to be sort of planting a, a seed or giving them ideas. That's not the case, eh? It's not only is it not the case, the opposite is true, is that there is evidence that from research is that when you ask people that question, they're more likely to get the help that they need. So it's not even that, so it's, so it's not even that it's risky, it's protective. So, um, but, but, but it is important to acknowledge it's difficult to ask that question. And suicide prevention is more than simply asking that question, but it's something we all can do. Um, and, and genuinely, genuinely it can be, it could be life-saving. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. I was kind of approaching the hour mark here, mate. So I'm going to start to wrap up, but I had a couple of questions that I wanted to talk more in regards to you and your work rather than the work itself. Um, and I often think with uh, suicides, the the stigma and the fear, it starts with the word, with saying the word, mm-hmm. right? And I, um, it just kind of occurred to me while we were chatting, if you're at a, a, a social situation and maybe you meet someone for the first time and they say, oh, Rory, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a suicide re- researcher. How do people tend to respond to that? Because it, people are, I've, you know, people do shy away from that. Yeah, word. no. Well, you get, you, um, you get one of two responses. One is um, people are really interested and they have their own story to tell or something they know. And that is very common. Uh, uh, that's probably the more common response now. But then there is still, sadly, those people just don't know what to say and are, are frightened of having the conversation. Now, what's encouraging, though, is over the last 20-odd years since I've been doing this work, I'm more likely to get that first response of people have been really interested in trying to understand, they're asking questions about trying to understand the complexity of suicide, understanding there's more than depression, there's more than whatever their stereotypical understanding of it was. So that's really, really good that that's changed. And, and that's probably changed probably most in the last 10 years. And part of that change has been public public figures talking about their mental health and talking about suicide and being bereaved by suicide, as well as um, just all of us having these conversations. Now, so I remember when I started out, you would very rarely do public lectures on suicide and people will be frightened i know the opposite is there's there, which is great there's lots of these conversations now and i do a lot of that sort of public engagement work yeah but so the short answer is um 
most people are intrigued um, about the work because everybody has an as either a myth or some understanding that they're trying to challenge or make sense of. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just the other thing, just before we go, mate, I wanted to ask you was how do you um, how do you look after yourself working in this space? Because as well as like the research and the and the numbers, I think the research around suicide it's actually really interesting what that research involves. Because obviously, with suicide, if someone has taken that step, well, then we can't ask the questions, right? And I know a lot of your work involves people talking to people who have. Um, have attempted and people who have thought about it and people who have been bereaved by suicide as well. Um, and that's a, a challenging space to spend a lot of time in. And I was just wondering how that's affected you over the years and how you kind of juggle all that. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. Thanks for that, Tom. Well, I'll answer it in two ways. One is talk about how we go about and you understanding suicide and then how I manage my mental health. And so, so you highlight really importantly that a lot of our work is we we speak to people who have attempted suicide, who've thought about it, or as you said, bereaved by suicide, and that can be both in the form of interviews or in more in depth sort of or not in depth uh, survey type stuff. But we also do experimental studies in which we're trying to understand maybe the psychophysiology. So we're trying to understand how the body responds to stress or how the body responds to a depressed mood. And we look at how maybe cortisol response. So we look at pain sensitivity, or we look at what we describe as these automatic implicit processes going on in your brain or mind. And, and we also then do interventions with people who have attempted suicide to try and see, can we intervene? Like, for example, safety planning I touched on earlier. Does that make a difference in terms of um, people who are suicidal? So we do all of that, but exact, exactly the point you just made, though, is the people we most want to speak to are sadly those who are, who are no longer with us. And so how we tackle that is in a couple of ways. So, so over the years, I've done some work on suicide note analysis to try and see what clues can be gleaned from suicide notes. And you can do some work on that, but it is still, still quite limited. And But then what, what's, what the research field often does are what's known as psychological autopsies. So, um, and what they are, are detailed examinations of the circumstances around somebody's death. And those detailed investigations could include looking at coroner's inquest papers, for example, if it's in England, um, interviews with clinicians, if clinicians were involved in the person's life, interviews with the family members, interviews with other people who knew the person, to try to build up a picture of the factors that <clears throat> the complex set of factors that lead to suicide. And indeed, one of the very first studies I did on suicide in Northern Ireland was a version of that sort of psychological autopsy approach, except I didn't do the interviews directly with family members. I used the findings from a coroner's court where the coroner, there were statements from family members and clinicians and so on. And, and that's one way, but it's still not ideal. And so what we're all trying to do in the suicide research and prevention field is but look, lots of different ways looking at trying to understand suicide risk and, and people who have both, yes, died by suicide, as I've just described, but also those who are alive, proxies. Proxy, so what we're talking about, it's as close as we can get to the, to the mind of somebody as suicidal as possible. And, and that has made important advances for us. But of course, there are limitations. 
Well, then that last bit then on your, how I look after my mental health. I mean, initially, I think when I started out in the field, I probably didn't do enough about looking after my mental health, but I'm very fortunate. I've got a good um, group of people around me, both friends and family and colleagues who I go to regularly for debriefs and support. And, and actually, and so I lead the Suicidal Behaviour Research Lab here in Glasgow. And one of the things we're really keen on is that peer supervision, peer support, because there's lots of different people within my group doing work on suicide. And so the good thing there is they all will have a slightly different experiences, but they're all working in the same area. So it's about looking after each other. And then there's also the opportunities for your own for, for, for therapy or support. And indeed, I have some years of, of going through having weekly therapy, both for professional reasons and also for personal reasons. And that's really helped me. And then the last thing is just um, is I do I, I try and do a lot of exercise. Just I, I'm passionate about tennis, and um, I often talk about that. Is that's probably the one place where I'm playing when I'm on the tennis court. It, I for me to play anyway half decent, I have to um, block everything else out, and that's sort of my me time. Yeah, sure. Just to get a get a break from it all. Yeah. Yep, oh, mate. Oh, well, um, I've enjoyed chatting to you immensely today, Rory. Thank you so much for your time. I I did want to say how much I enjoyed your book. And I'll put all the links in the episode notes because I think it's so valuable. And for me, as someone with my own experience, um, I've, I felt really seen by it. And it helped me to really understand some aspects of my own um, journey, you know. So I think um, for whatever reason, people want to learn more about suicide. There's, there's something there, you know, it's a, it's a really it's a useful tool. And um, yeah, thank you for today, mate. It was wonderful to meet you. And um, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. No, thanks, Tom. And just on the book, no, thanks for that comment on the book, because when I was set about writing the book during the pandemic that's why i hoped it would do it would speak to different people like people who have their own personal experience so they've felt have helped some sense of resonance of that but also clinicians or people bereaved by suicide or just anybody so i've tried to write, i tried to write it in this way which conveyed this science sort of how we go about this research but in a way i hope which is accessible to anybody but all but bringing together that people's personal stories together with the, the research and I think hopefully and thankfully it seems we've done that so I'm really pleased to hear that and I'm delighted to have the, have the conversation with you and keep up the amazing work that you're doing and and really that message promoting and dispelling many of the myth, myths around mental health so thanks for this conversation oh miss my pleasure thank you cheers thanks Megan cheers Big up to the proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>